0: You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges. And follow our website at friendsofeurope.org.
1: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. You are an incredibly disciplined disciplined crew, already sitting down bang on the dot for one o'clock so we can start on time. Thank you for that. Um, My name is Tamsin Rose and I'm a senior fellow at Friends of Europe and I am delighted to be your moderator for this afternoon. And we are here to discuss particularly the issue of deforestation, that it's a sustainability dilemma. And we're going to open up for you different issues of how we balance economic development in a global sense, environmental issues, food industry um, and the use of palm oil in Europe. So there's a, a lot of topics on the agenda for a relatively short period of time. So let me just explain the format for Cross- Café Crossfire. I'm delighted that we've got a distinguished panel and I will have a chance to introduce them to you in just a moment. But the format is very simple. Each of our speakers makes an introductory short five-minute statement and then we pass the microphone over to you. This is a format designed for engagement and participation. It's not a format that lends itself to people making long statements about their positions. What we're interested in doing here today is opening up a debate and seeing how far we can move that debate forward, benefiting from the diversity of stakeholders that you find here in Brussels. So that's the format. My job as moderator is to keep the flow happening. I have questions for our panels in case you're shy or slow to answer, but my experience is once we get the conversation going... My difficulty will be making sure we end on time because there are so many topics linked in today. So let me now welcome uh, our panel members and introduce you to them. And as is the uh, standard approach for the Friends of Europe, we seek to have a balance of uh, speakers and a balance of different stakeholders at the table. So we will begin with Welcoming Worlds by Danielle Morley, who's the Director of Outreach and Engagement at the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. And then our speakers will include Mr. Nazir Fouad, and we are delighted that he is here for all the way from Indonesia, the head of the Indonesia Peatland Restoration Agency, and he'll be giving us experience and insight from on the ground, from where this issue is at its hottest and uh, highest priority. Then we have Mr. Brendan McNamara, who's the head of global NGO engagement at HSBC Bank, then Benedict Yavour, who's the vice chair of the European Parliament Committee on the Environment, Public Health and Food Safety. And he's also, I'm delighted to say, for Friends of Europe, one of our young, European Young Leaders, which is an inventive, unique, and multi stakeholder program that designs to promote a European identity by engaging the continent's most promising talents in initiatives that will shape Europe's future. So we'll be looking to you both as a current Member of Parliament and somebody who's likely to shape the debate in the future. And then finally, Sebastian Rizzo, who's the Director of EU Forest Policy at Greenpeace Europe, will be providing some insight. So that's our panel. And beyond that, the rest of the magic is up to you, the conversation that we can have in this time together. So now that you're all aware of the format, you you had a chance to get yourself something to eat, coffee and water. If you need to, please feel free to go back and get some more We will be photographing the event, and the the photographs will be put online. We will also be writing a report from this event, and it will be made publicly available on the Friends of Europe website. Um, Mr. Fouad had a PowerPoint presentation, which was prepared, but unfortunately we can't share because this format has no PowerPoint. But we have made it available online, so people will be able to look at it afterwards. And I know there are some very valuable maps that are involved in it. So, at this point, I would now like to hand over to Danielle, as one of the partners. You have a mic at the table.
2: Good afternoon, everybody. Um, I'm delighted to be here today on behalf of the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. Uh, Today marks the International Day of Forests, and it's also the the spring equinox. Um, So it's really beautiful to have the view that we have behind us. Um, one of the most memorable tropical forests that, that I visited was in Tikal, which is a, an ancient city-state in, um, in, deep in the Guatemalan rainforest. And if you have the privilege to go there, you will learn that the once great Mayan Empire, which lasted about 3,000 years, eventually collapsed due to changes brought on by deforestation, caused by over-farming, and by urbanization. Their deforestation led to regional climate change and severe droughts, which in turn exacerbated the social and political unrest. And all the way back in 800 AD, after thousands of years of steady growth, uh, with the Mayan population at its peak and the most densely populated region in history, their world collapsed, and within 150 years, only 5% of their population survived. Visiting Tikal in Guatemala was for me a stark reminder. Their dilemmas are our dilemmas. Big cities and over farming are driving deforestation today. We know that 2016 was the hottest year on record and our lives depend on preserving our forests. (laughs) Yet we also need to feed ourselves, all 7.5 billion of us and counting. And as world population is increasing, So does our demand for vegetable oil, and particularly for palm oil, which is high-yielding, cheap, and multifunctional. But it can only be grown in the equatorial belt, which is where some of the most biodiverse and forested areas of our planet are found. And despite huge improvements made over the last decade, palm oil continues to drive deforestation. It's an urgent problem that needs addressing, which is why we're here today. The RSPO welcomes the European Parliament draft resolution, which was voted by the MV Committee on the 9th of March on palm oil and deforestation. For us, this sends an important political message to all of us, that we have a shared responsibility to work together through the dilemmas to find the best and most sustainable solutions to these challenges. I think we've already gone quite a long way in defining and agreeing upon what criteria must be followed to ensure that sustainable production of palm oil. And the latest step was made in November last year, when business and NGOs who championing the move towards zero deforestation palm oil agreed a joint methodology for implementing their commitments to zero deforestation. The RSPO is supportive of this drive for higher standards and is offering the RSPO Next certification And we look forward to having the first growers certified to these enhanced criteria very soon. (laughs) Meanwhile, over here in Europe, the governments of the Netherlands, Germany, Denmark, France, UK, and Norway have signed up to the Amsterdam Declaration, which was recognised in the ENVY resolution. And this supports the goal of reaching 100% sustainable palm oil in Europe. In addition, there's voluntary initiatives in seven European countries where refiners, manufacturers and NGOs are working together to drive uptake. Over in Africa, the governments of the Central African Republic, Cote d'Ivoire, then Democratic Republic of Congo, Liberia, the Republic of Congo and Sierra Leone have all recently made a joint pledge towards sustainable palm oil development, named the Marrakesh Declaration Agreement. Sorry. And importantly, the governments of Indonesia and Malaysia have established the Indonesian and Malaysian Sustainable Palm Oil Standards, major developments which are significantly improving the baseline for palm oil production. So today, our priority must be to work on closing the gap between these commitments and action, to deliver on what's been signed up to, and to ensure the consistent implementation of the criteria and policies we've adopted so far. There is still room for improvement. And for our part, the RSPO will very soon launch a participatory review of our standard, which has to be completed by 2018. But to consolidate what we've achieved so far and to create global solutions, we still need to work together from the plantations and the smallholder farmers, right along the supply chain, to the policymakers in the producing and the consuming countries, the consumers, and all of us here today. So my welcome message to you is this, join the efforts and work with us to find the solutions which will deliver, and I hope you enjoy today's event. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you, Danielle.
1: So 2017 is certainly a year of challenge for for Europe and the EU institutions. I'm, I'm hoping that we don't go the way of the Mayan civilizations, but I think you have given us uh, an indication of just how serious the threat can be when a society essentially overuses its resources. So now let's turn to um, our speaker, Mr. Fuad, who's come all the way from Indonesia. Probably this sharp tension between economic development and feeding a society and growing and using the resources is felt most acutely on the ground, and Indonesia is one of the countries where this issue is at its, its, uh, its focal point. What can you share with us that you'd like to send as a message? Yeah.
3: Thank you, uh, Tasmin. <clears throat> yes, let me start by <coughs> uh, taking your point, Daniela. I, I was working for WWF for 20-something years in my previous life. so. Uh, it is quite a, a stunning situation so when I was appointed by the president of Indonesia to lead a, a national agency which reported directly to the president. That alone stands uh, out to, to show how serious the government wants to improve the situation. Now, many years back when I worked for WWF, uh, RSPO is something uh, that I fully respect. It brings the... Uh, um, the producers, the markets, the NGOs, moving forward for sustainability standards. But on that time, I remember very well, <coughs> it's not always easy to get the support from the government to RSPU. But nowadays, in the last two years at least, I was very uh, surprised to see, because Indonesian government made not only a rhetoric statement in UNFCCC or in the uh, New York, uh, 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 UN Assembly, but made a policy that is, I have to say, beyond RSPO standard. Beyond, above RSPO standard. Here are the two policies. <clears throat> it's signed by the President. It's a government regulation. Government regulation in our legal hierarchy is very high. It's just one step below the law, which was passed by the Parliament. This is the reg- regulations on Pitland, talking about Moratorium of pit land, even on areas which have been licensed. So in the past, five years ago, our president passed out a moratorium policy to issue new license. But land already licensed out, we can't do anything because they have the legal rights. But with these new regulations by the president, it doesn't matter. You have a license or you don't have a license. If you have a license on pit land, you have not opened it, you can't open it anymore. You have to protect it, so sorry to say, it's a bit bad news for the industries because suddenly, if a company which (coughs) already only opened half of the area and then the other half they have not opened it, they can't now. They have to protect it. That's what the law said. That was December two thousand sixteen. In February two thousand seventeen, so it's only two months after this regulation, the Minister of Environment and Forestry issued six regulations to implement this government regulations, all on pit land. I was told by my colleagues in the US that EPA need four years to issue a new regulation. Indonesian ministry issued six regulations in two months just to follow up the presidential uh, government regulation. So time is changing in Indonesia. The government is really serious. It struck the industry. I mean, a lot of the industries that I respect very highly because of the sustainability standards are even bewildered wonder that my god this is beyond what we were committing to the uh, buyers regional market so here we are uh, indonesia uh, is very proud to be uh, invited by unep to join this what I call global pitland initiative there are three countries indonesia uh, congo and uh, peru i think Uh, indonesia will host the first uh, (coughs) the global pitland initiative uh, conference uh, in may uh, this year in jakarta we believe with this very advanced Indonesian policy um, and the operational regulations, how to implement that, how to monitor, and how to correct the industry if they don't do it right, we can be a new leader in peatland conservation. And we would like to also share our knowledge, our experiences with all other countries in tropics, which have huge peatland. Peatland, uh, a lot of you know, but maybe some of you, you don't know. Indonesia has the largest tropical peatland in the world. 15 million hectares. 15 million, I think, is about five times than Belgium. That's our size of our pit land. Yes, half of it already destroyed, but we still have another half, almost half, which is still intact. So all of the intact have to be protected. The one which is destroyed has to be restored. This is why the agency was created by the president, to restore the de- 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 degraded one. And our pit land uh, is believed to, st- to-, to uh, store carbon about Thirty or forty billion tons or gigatons. You know how Belgium? How much Belgium national emissions every year? About one point, about hundred and ten million. Indonesia has forty billion. So, uh, is uh, almost forty years of the Belgium emission. It's huge, this carbon carbon storage. This is what Indonesia is recognizing that we want to protect, we want to restore, and partly also to avoid haze and fires. The president himself went to the field four times in 2015 when we have our worst fires event and see how destructive it is for the public health, for the economy, and so on. And uh, uh, it's the first time, I think, for Indonesian history that up to the highest level, the president himself fully realize that to prevent fires and carbon emissions uh, uh, huge emissions for global uh, mitigations of climate change we need to restore our peatland and here is what we're going to do we're looking forward for corporations we are very happy to have the eu sign an agreement with asean the indonesian part of asean to do a peatland uh, uh, restoration program for the next three years. Uh, We're looking forward to also working with NGOs, with academics and with uh, state members also on this programme. Thank you.
1: So it's a whole series of interesting and positive news coming from from the government in an acceleration of activities in the starting two years ago, but obviously in the last few months. This is uh, clearly a message of when there is the political will then the institutions and the structures follow. So now let's turn to our next speaker, Brendan McNamara, because one of the other drivers of decision-making, it isn't just governments, but it's also investment and finance. What can you tell us about the role that financing plays in shaping decision-making by businesses?
4: Uh, Thank you, Tamsin. Delighted to be here on International Forest Day, and uh, it's nice to see so many people here. I'd like to start by putting deforestation in context for HSBC. We see it as one of the major two drivers, along with fossil fuel usage, of climate change, which is why we established some years ago a Climate Change Centre of Excellence, which is, I believe now, the top-rated independent research resource in the financial community, looking at all the impacts of climate change. We've also established a Climate Business Division looking to take advantages of the transition to a low-carbon economy. We have a sustainable finance unit that's developing products potentially that may help that. (coughs) For us, we want sustainable business. We want to have a sustainable client base. We want to offer sustainable dividends for our shareholders, sustainable employment opportunities for our staff, and we want the right clients doing the right business in the right way. We accept that we don't always get it right. Uh, But when we don't, we will admit it and we will try and make amends. So 13, 14 years ago, we introduced our first agricultural Uh, and forest products policy. They've been renewed and revised over the years, most recently in February of this year, um, which is possible mainly because of the agreement made on high conservation stock forest that came out in the back end of uh, 2016. It's not limited to (coughs) palm oil, because we recognise the effects of other agricultural products too, soy, rubber wood, for example, and, of course, forestry itself, which is subject to a separate um, policy. We may finance a grower, we may finance an end user, we may finance a trader. But we're not directly involved in the actual production of the palm oil. So for us, one of the most important things is that we can check the credentials of our client base and we use independent certification to do that. It's why we've supported RSPO. We have a member on the board. And we're particularly delighted with RSPO because it brings all the players together. It brings NGOs, it brings finance, it brings growers and traders. And it's the only organisation that does this. And it may be imperfect. It's only a dozen or so years old. And we've certainly worked within RSPO to improve it, uh, particularly around the complaints process, for example. But the more stakeholders are constructively engaged with RSPO, in our view, the better it will be. And I think there's one other comment I'd like to make before wrapping up, which is that we can look at this also in the context of the UNSDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. And just to pick two out... Uh, number eight, the provision of decent work and economic growth. And number 12, to have responsible consumption and production. I think that leads you very neatly back into support for the RSPO and support for sustainable palm
1: So there we've heard how over a number of years you have increased the different criteria and range of products from the financing community to try and encourage stakeholders and and businesses to move in the right direction. And now let's turn to the European Parliament where um, Europe is both the world's largest exporter of food, second largest importer, so a big player not just in food but in other areas around forestry products. How do you see the European... Parliament's role in helping to contribute to this broader debate?
5: First of all, thank you for the invitation and I am happy to be back in this community of friends of Europe. Um, and uh, I believe that this is a very timely debate and this is one of the most important discussions we, we, we have right now in the European Parliament, um, what the EU and the European Parliament can do uh, against deforestation. Uh, what I believe that deforestation is a very complex issue, and, and uh, uh, we, cannot, uh, we cannot limit it to the question of palm oil. Of course, this is in, in, in the focus of interest uh, recently, uh, but there are a lot more um, problems related to, to deforestation that, uh, that palm oil uh, production uh, uniquely. Uh, the logging industry operates in the world's most fragile and climate-critical ecosystem, so... Um, Climate policy making, energy policies of um, global energy and climate policies, but also the EU's energy and climate uh, policies have a huge effect on, on deforestation. Um, and as it's not simply the palm oil, but also production of uh, soybean in, in South America or uh, meat production, leather, biomaterials biofuels, uh, are also related to the question of uh, deforestation. Uh, There are a huge variety, a huge list of related European regulations which should uh, face with the problem of of deforestation. The EU is uh, the world's largest importer of embedded deforestation. So finally, the problem is not for Indonesia or uh, Brazil or Congo, but this is a problem of Euro because we are the drivers of uh, deforestation in, in, in those countries. So we have to do uh, our best to, to, uh, uh, to stop it. What we can do, of course, um, it's quite complex and sometimes it's not easy because, uh, of course, uh, some economic interests and also some political interests are against <laughs> effective. Uh, measures or effective steps from, from European institutions uh, against uh, uh, deforestation. But I think that there are some very good initiatives from the, from, on the European level. Just it was already mentioned that the, the recent uh, palm oil report, which um, the Env Committee uh, adopted at the beginning of, of March, which is 40 pages, uh, quite huge, a uh, report on, on palm oil production is an important step ahead. But also, it's not only the new regulation, and of course this report is not a legislative action, so we need uh, an action plan and some legislative measures after the, the report, uh, really to implement what is included in the report. Uh, but uh, already we have some legislative measures uh, as well, like the timber regulation, like FLECT+, and... And uh, um, even the the winter package, energy package, has some some, uh, links to to deforestation. Um, So what we have to do, first of all, to keep in mind the existing regulation and to do our best to implement it. Because sometimes the problem is not only the lack of proper regulation... We need it, and I hope that in, in uh, palm oil production this reports will be continued and, and we will have some, some legislative actions as well. Uh, the same with uh, uh, the action plan on wildlife trade, that some further actions uh, can be done, but also uh, to ensure that the existing regulation is, is uh, well and properly uh, implemented. And this, is, um, this raises a lot of... Further questions, including corruption, because sometimes, and I think that I've run out of time, uh, but um, sometimes we see that corruption is something we cannot... I just exclude from our consideration that even the best regulation we have in Europe is is unable to perform well just because it's not implemented uh, locally um, because of uh, corruption. So the good governance is very closely related to uh, deforestation uh, issues uh, and the EU has to be active in providing and and helping um, uh, third parties uh, in in good uh, governance. Then, and I finish here, uh, also it was mentioned that financing, and the EU is not only a consumer of uh, deforestation-related products, but uh, a major um, financial player on, on the global market, and, and um, invest a lot in activities, sometimes with the best intention, which finally are, uh, uh, resulted in uh, deforestation. So we have to scan uh, all the regulations we have in, in Europe and all the activities we have in Europe which are related to uh, the deforestation. We have to be sure that the existing regulations are really help us to stop deforestation. We have to uh, better implement them to help uh, third parties uh, to be able to, to uh, implement them and then uh, to go ahead and to accept new regulation uh, which um, can um, challenge or can face with uh, the new problems like uh, palm oil uh, production and can stop uh, deforestation related to to palm oil uh, production. There's a lot of other issues as well, but I think it's better to stop here and then we can come back with questions.
1: Thank you. And now I'm going to turn over the floor to uh, Sébastien Rizot from Greenpeace. Now, you're an organisation that's been campaigning for a long time around this. The previous speakers have explained this is a global challenge, and Europe is a key player, whether it's consuming products that have come from deforestation or financing or, or driving it. You know, the, there obviously needs to be some key role for Europe in trying to find a solution. From point of view of Greenpeace, what would you like to see us do more of? And can I remind you to keep the microphone close?
6: Thank you. First of all, uh, thank you for the invitation and thank you for giving me uh, the opportunity to speak in this event. Uh, On this uh, World Forest Day, I would like uh, first, uh, before I I answer your question, I would like uh, first to remind everyone of a few facts. Um, uh, Over a billion people worldwide rely on forests for their livelihoods and forests are crucial if we are to prevent the worst effects of climate change. If we don't protect forests and restore degraded ones, just to be clear, there's no hope of keeping global warming below acceptable levels. That's why the world leaders have recognized the importance of forests in Paris, and they have also pledged to stop deforestation globally by 2020. Uh, yet forests uh, continue to be destroyed at an alarming rate, uh, mainly dri- driven by agriculture and uh, global, consumer de- uh, global consumer demand. But I don't want to sound too defeatist. Uh, though. Um, uh, solutions do exist. It is possible to produce agri-commodities like palm oil, but also a spo- uh, a so- a soy um, or, or cocoa or leather in a, in a responsible way without clearing forests and peatland, or without violating the human rights. Solutions exist, but the problem is that they are not being widely implemented and that uh, progress is far too slow. So while a few companies and groups uh, lead the way in sustainable practices, many others don't fulfill their sustainability commitments or else have no policies at all. The industry also, for the most part, continues uh, to uh, rely on certification schemes, uh, such as RSPO, uh, whose standards and levels of enforcement uh, remain too weak. Um, If we look at at banks, uh, the lifeblood of the the agricultural expansion, uh, HSBC, for example, has recently strengthened its palm oil uh, uh, policies. But the corporate responsibility of the banking sector as a whole remains vastly insufficient. So the conclusion that we draw is that uh, industry self-regulation and product labeling alone uh, won't be enough to stop deforestation. What we need is governments globally, both in producing and consuming countries, to act together and step up their action. So we need laws, uh, regulations and support mechanisms to transform our production and consumption systems in line with the uh, UN forest goals. A- and the EU as a, as a major consumer, a major trader, a hub of international finance has a special responsibility. And it should be the ambition of the EU to become a deforestation-free um, uh, economy. As a first step, the EU, uh, our, our recommendation is that the EU adopt... Uh, uh, regulations to remove deforestation from its supply chains uh, and to stop uh, banks funding deforestation. It is also crucial that the EU uh, stops uh, supporting the use of bad biofuels uh, which compete uh, uh, for land with food uh, and make, make climate change worse. And finally uh, the EU uh, and its member states must increase their support to developing countries substantially as they take steps to protect forests uh, and work towards the sustainable development goals. And uh, uh, I want to conclude uh, my opening remarks by asking uh, the Commission and, uh, and Commissioner Vella uh, specifically to present without delay an EU action plan on deforestation. Uh, this action plan is long overdue and is now urgently uh, needed uh, time is uh, running out to end deforestation. We are supposed to end deforestation by 2020. So it's really now the moment to uh, roll up our sleeves and uh, to take action.
1: Excellent. Thank you. <clears throat> so our speakers have done an excellent job to keeping a brief initial statement which leaves us plenty of time as a community to explore and debate and take the issues further so let me now see just a show of hands where there is an interest in contributing great the room is obviously warm enough to keep going my prepared questions aren't needed we'll start there are two questions here and then i'll come to this side i'll i'll take maybe three or four questions and we'll see if the panel can <laughs> answer them then we'll take a second round yes those two gentlemen yeah we'll give you, you two, both the mic then I'll come over here and back onto that side.
7: Uh, thank you, madam. My name is Peter van Dijk. I work with Sinarmas, uh, also known as Golden Agri Resources in Indonesia. We are the world's second largest palm oil producer. I only joined uh, Sinarmas after having talked to Greenpeace in Amsterdam. So we are a close partner of Greenpeace, as we are with World Wildlife Forum, um, Conservation International... Etc. Cetera, et cetera, and of course with government. What I would like uh, to comment on after these excellent uh, remarks is, um, as some of the, you have already mentioned, some of the speakers' corruption, and the reality of that the, the rural areas in Indonesia are, uh, or according to the, the BPS, the, the Statistics um, Institution, over 80% informal, meaning many Indonesians in the rural areas don't have birth certificates, don't have land certificates, don't have a tax number. And that means that also the local authorities don't have income. I would like to also um, share with you the, the importance that all people in the rural areas are part of the formal sector. Otherwise, um, the legal framework cannot be enforced. And on the other end, when people remain poor, and informal, they will continue burning the forests down, and it's an urgent problem. Now, already in Indonesia, over 20% of what you produce in palm oil, a corporate organizations such as Sinarmas, needs to integrate smallholder farmers, where we have a, a, an experience of 30 years. We produce 1,000% more average per year than any of the other competing edible oils. 1,000%, 10 times more. Yeah, that explains a little bit why palm oil is a little bit cheaper than the other edible oils. Now, the thing is that nearly 45% of the rest is independent smallholder farmers, those informal people that I was uh, telling you about. And that is where the government, I think, and also the BRG, the Badan Restauraci Gambut, the, the, the peat institution of Nazir, um, has difficulties with because many of these informal uh, smallholder farmers, have no choice than to produce okay. in forest or peat. Uh, maybe your comments, Panazir.
1: So you, you've made us the important link to the issues of poverty, rural and local livelihoods, that this is part. It's not just about global supply chains. It's also about local communities. So thank you for that point. Speaker next to you. Uh,
7: thank you. Uh, Ulrich Schreuder, I would have a question to uh, the head of the Indonesian Peatland Restoration Agency.
1: Where are you from, sir? Uh,
7: European Economic and Social Committee. Right, thank you. Um, um, Because uh, Mr. Fawad explained that uh, there were now some government regulations which also apply to uh, existing licenses and and owners. Uh, Well, that is uh, quite surprising uh, uh, to me. Uh, Could you explain uh, in what way were owners and uh, license holders compensated and are there any legal court cases in Indonesia or uh, abroad uh, uh, going on. Thank you.
1: Okay, so it's a very practical question, Mr. Fued. You're taking notes because you have things.
0: Uh, we have a speaker here. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Tassi. So loud, everybody can hear me. Uh, My name is Kala, and I'm from the Malaysian Embassy here in Brussels. I have a question to Mr. Benedek um, about the current resolution. That will be voted in plenary on the 3rd of April, 3rd and 4th of April. So my question is, you clearly indicated that EU is the largest importer of deforested products, and we have gone through the report very thoroughly. And 50% of your imports are coming from soybeans and soybean cake. I won't mention the countries. And yet, this resolution singles out palm oil and deforestation, which is 9% from Indonesia and 2% from Malaysia. So that's 11%. And uh, you clearly stated also that, uh, well, we compliment the EU on this resolution. And Malaysia has been also congratulated in the resolution that we have uh, reforested. Wow. But we still um, don't understand why it's palm oil that's being singled out. If it was a resolution on deforestation in general, we would applaud the EU. Thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you. The mic will go back there.
1: I'm going to take a couple of others um, so that we can get the conversation going. Was somebody else here. Yes, this lady here. And then I'm coming to that side. Hi, my name is Maria Soletti. I'm a reporter working for Politico. Um, I read uh, the Palmer Report, and I'm covering these issues. It stated that um, whereas it recognized the positive impact of RSPO, it was, in effect... Uh, not preventing deforestation uh, in part due to, I think, uh, weak means of uh, enforcing uh, the standards. Uh, So my question is for RSPO, what do you plan to ramp up the certification schemes in order to make them more efficient? Okay, thank you. And I had one more over here. Yes, that gentleman. And then that's the first set of questions for the panel. Uh,
7: Thank you. Good afternoon. I'm Max Baumann, working for GIZ, German Development Corporation. I have a question to uh, Mr. McNamara. Um, and I would be interested does uh, HSBC support um, the call to treat sustainable and deforestation free commodities favorable in trade agreements? And if you um, support the call to treat uh, sustainable and deforestation free commodities in trade agreements favorably? And if yes, what impact this would have on your decision-making in HSBC. Thank you.
1: Excellent. So we've got a series of very specific questions to our panel members. And maybe maybe I will start with uh, Fouad. Um, Mr. Fouad, you've been asked very specifically a couple of questions about the issue of the existing licenses. Were people compensated or their court cases? And also this question of people living in in the informal grey economy, invisible to the government. How do we bring them in and make sure they also benefit from the local environment.
3: Thank you. Let me start uh, to Mr. Day, if I'm not mistaken, the second uh, uh, questions that I got. Uh, In the handout, if you grab some, uh, you can double it later. Uh, In this handout, on the third page, uh, I laid out uh, chronologically from 2015, October until recently, February 2017, on this policy that is the first instruction from the cabinet meeting, up to a point it becomes a regulation. So start starting in October 2015, from a cabinet meeting, the president has already instructed, stop all pitland conversion on intact pitland, land, uh, regardless of license status. And if a pit land has been opened, but not planted yet, also moratorium. You cannot do anything until the government decide whether that part of the pit land, supposed to be for conservation because it is a part of uh, important pit domes or biodiversity, <laughs> or indeed it can be for cultivation. So there was already instruction in October 2015 and a follow-up uh, uh, by regulations issued by the government on December 2016 and 17. So far, the industry is of course uh, worried. Uh, the government offering uh, a solution, number one, uh, if you have already planted uh, the palm oil or planted any crops in the concessions on pit land, and if later the government found that oh, that is important part of pit dooms that need to protect it, the regulation said you are allowed to continue your crops for one cycle. When the cycle finishes, you cannot replant it. You have to protect it until the end of the license. If so, that's the first category, and it's also uh, in the slide uh, handout number four. If that area has uh, not been planted but already open, is in moratorium stage. I mentioned the first time. It also apply. Or the area has not been cut; it's still a pit swamp forest. No more, you can't. And if a company in the three categories have more than 40% of the concessions no longer allowed, they can ask for a land swap. The government is responsible to find a land swap and give the land. Uh, Now, the details of regulations on the land swap is still being drafted by the government. Of course, consulting with several agencies as well as uh, with the company. So, uh, that is the case now. Um, so far, we have no uh, court cases. I hope it stay that way, because the government is really looking for the solutions uh, for those companies. Unfortunate <laughs> enough, that they got the license ten years ago, five years ago, twenty years ago on this important peatland. Now, number two, uh, we have about 11 million hectares of palm oil already, 11. Point, maybe 7.9, and about 40% uh, owned by independent farmers. So let's say close to five million hectares. Uh, is owned by independent farmers. The government is, has a policy now issue a policy uh, in this administration by 2019 we need to give out land for people for farmers of our village of our cooperative of our farmer groups up to 17.4 million hectares. Now we have 5 million hectares of uh, palm oil that under independent and they may not have land title. At the same time, we have to is the targets put by President, to many minist- ministries to uh, redistribute land, 17.4 million hectares. So, of course, ideally, that 5 million hectares of palm oil, which have no land title, in many cases, will be part of the 17.4 million hectares of targets. So, the 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 uh, prime ministers working on that is now is really being uh, questioned by the president, like maybe every few months, where's the progress? Where the progress? Because we have another less than three years to come until uh, the, the end of the expiration, And I think the land issued out uh, is maybe close to 1 million out of 17.4. So it's 60 million to issue. And that should solve uh, a lot of problems uh, for the land distributions, and also uh, the government uh, budget, as well as we invite investors to help doing the replanting. A lot of uh, Indonesian farmers, not only on palm oil, but also on coconut, on rubber, the productivity uh, is too low, or maybe less than half than the ideal product, uh, productivity rate. And in many cases, to increase the productivity, they have to replant because the uh, The the seed that they planted on the first place was not a good quality. And the government uh, is preparing uh, funding a budget to support the farmers uh, to do their planting as well as uh, there were at least two that I know investment uh, initiatives which have been uh, launched. uh, One in Davos recently, two months ago, and another one in Jakarta uh, last year, about six months ago, uh, targeting up to $5 billion for both funds That will be used for those farmers to do replanting on different crops and to do protection and conservation. Of course, the Pillar agency have a lot of interest. Uh, and then number three, it's good that Sinarmas has uh, implemented a 20% compulsory for partnership, but a lot of other companies has not. They maybe have 5%, they may have 6%, 10%. So all of these companies, Indonesian uh, palm oil companies, if they abide by these regulations of 20%. A lot of these 5 million hectares of smallholder farmers will also be included already, maybe half, yeah. Uh, and I like to say that uh, you, you may ask in the past that Indonesia five years ago, six years ago, issued a very good policy how's the implementation. Now with this regulation and with the agencies that uh, I lead preparing, we tested already technology, high tech in monitoring the results of the restoration. The measurement is taking in every 60 minutes with a sensor. Every 60 minutes, that data is stored in the uh, data logger and sent right away through, of course, satellite uh, signal. So the president, the minister, the governor, the head of district, or the CEO of a company can see it in their uh, monitor, in the PC computer, whether the unit on the ground is doing a proper job or not. And according to regulation, if for a certain period they fail to do that, and they have been warned three times, they still fail, government will revoke the license. This is in the regulation. So we're really looking optimistic that now companies have to implement the regulation. Thank you.
1: Excellent. Thank you. I mean, I think you've picked up on many of the issues that that came out in the uh, the questions that came forward, and, and you've... You've made the link to implementation and the use of high-tech tools to do real-time monitoring on what's happening on the ground. Let me now turn to Benedict. Is the EU unfairly focusing on palm oil in Indonesia and Malaysia versus the real concern about deforestation elsewhere? What can you tell us about maybe some of the more heated debates amongst your colleagues in the parliament, and how do we get the balance right?
5: Yeah, and, and thank you for the question, because I think it completely f- fits to, to my line. And I started my introductory remark that palm oil is only one of the, the key drivers for deforestation. And I believe that we have to uh, face with all the other uh, sectors where deforestation is also an important issue. Um, and uh, we are pushing for a more general uh, approach to the deforestation issue, and Sebastian, uh, you already mentioned that uh, we expect the commission to come up with a, a deforestation action plan. Uh, several times we already contacted the commission, and now we expect uh, the deforestation action plan perhaps before the end of this year, and this is something which uh, we expect very much, uh, because I believe that really that, that is the, the right approach, and, and not uh, simply to pick out this or that uh, issue but but, uh, to give some some proposals and solutions uh, on a more general level. Still I believe that palm oil is a key issue Uh, partly because um, it has uh, recently it was one of the most or the fastest growing um, uh, deforestation related product in the global market and uh, it has the potential of even um, um, faster growth in the in the future, partly because of the european regulation, and when we are talking about the biofuel regulation, and if we don 't limit um, um, the participation or, or, or contributing palm oil to, to the European uh, biofuel targets, that could uh, cause serious troubles in in those countries, so I, I believe that uh, um, that uh, palm oil is a key issue right now. It's clearly not the only one. Um, there are other ones which are also or almost as uh, as important as, as palm oil. But palm oil is one of the, the hot topics now. And uh, in some areas, palm oil production is uh, the main driver for new deforestation. Um, so um, I, I think that... Um, The European Parliament had good reasons to deal with the question of palm oil, um, but I agree that we have to uh, deal with all the uh, other issues as well. Um, And if I can react on on the other remark or contribution on corruption and illegal activities uh, issue, and also in in the palm oil report, uh, the European Parliament uh, proposes to um, promote the sustainable palm oil uh, production schemes and uh, to um, be sure that the European supply chain, is, is, after a certain period of time, is limited to, to sustainable palm oil uh, uh, production. And we know the limits of that. And, and um, I think that sustainable palm oil production is, is not a wunderwaffe. So it's not going to solve uh, all the problems. Uh, and uh, there are some, some very important criteria uh, which um, um, sustainable palm oil schemes or certification uh, have to fulfill to be efficient. And we work on that and, and we had already some discussions on the issue how to make RSPO, uh, RSPO or RSP or plus or, or future possible uh, certification schemes to become as effective as, uh, as possible. But it also helps not only to, to cut uh, the illegal supply of the European markets, but I hope, and this is a hope at the moment, but I hope that perhaps this can contribute also the whitening of the the palm oil market. If one of the main consumers of uh, palm oil wants to see certificates, legal uh, certificates on palm oil, it helps uh, to to whiten uh, uh, the market, and it, it helps to, uh, to limit and of course you cannot uh, completely make them disappear, but to, to limit the level of uh, illegal uh, activities or uh, sans papier activities um, uh, in, in palm oil production. Of course, the EU is only one of the importers of, of palm oil, so if it is only the EU which is doing that, uh, the result could be that order certified uh, palm oil from the producer countries come to the EU market and the illegal production goes to, to other markets so we have to push other uh, players globally including uh, Eastern Asia uh, Japan and, and China is a growing uh, consumer of palm oil, also the United States uh, to introduce similar regulations because this is, the, this is a must uh, but we are responsible for the EU regulations So what we can do is uh, to to accept first a report and uh, preferably after a legislative action on on palm oil within the EU. And once we've did it or we've done it, uh, we can ask and push others to to follow the example uh, the EU set up.
1: Excellent. Thank you. I'm now going to ask... um Brendan, to to answer a question, then I'll I'll invite Sebastian to make a a, a comment across all of the topics, because I'm sure there are issues Greenpeace will want to speak on. But coming back to Brendan, I mean, you advise and support and um, provide frameworks for the financial industries. Now, we had a question from the audience, you know, about this question, if Indonesia has essentially said people who've paid for licenses can no longer use them, This is the classic type of thing you'd see in a trade dispute that would come through. Um, And this issue of compensation and how a multinational that has legitimately bought a license and is now unable to exploit it. So in the work that you do with the financing industries, you, you were asked very clearly, do you support the integration of sustainable and deforestation products into trade agreements? And you know, to what extent would the companies that you finance expect to use trade agreements to counteract some of the measures that Indonesia is putting in place to protect their forest land? Tough questions, but let's see if you can answer them.
4: I'm not sure I can, so let's get your expectations right to start with. Um, trade agreements uh, become tricky areas, especially with what's happening around the world at the moment so with uh, rising protectionism. Our bank was founded 152 years and 18 days ago to finance um, international trade. So we're clearly pro-free trade and pro-trade agreements that help lift people out of poverty and provide wealth throughout the economy. If, for example, the EU were to do something specifically on palm oil or on other products, could it fall foul of WTO rules? I'm not the expert on that. I'm happy to take a more detailed question from you and go back and ask my um, colleagues who do know the answer to that. But broadly, do we support, you know, sustainable commodities? The answer is yes. We do not wish to finance unacceptable impacts, whether that's on deforestation, other environmental degradation, or damage to um, humans uh, and uh, human rights, for example. So I can't answer the question.
1: Okay. Well, I think that that's fair enough. That you've you've set out for us the principles that would guide the work that you do, um, Sebastian, as Green Greenpeace. Presumably, everything you've heard is music to your ears. You've got political will from Indonesian governments taking action. You've got the EU proposing uh, possibly a deforestation action plan. You've got legislation coming forward. The finance in the industry is saying we don't want to finance things with a negative impact. Can we sit back and relax?
6: <laughs> no, obviously not. Otherwise, I mean, if, uh, if self-regulation was uh, working, uh, we wouldn't be sitting here and uh, deforestation would have ended uh, already. Uh, Just just a a couple of remarks. I mean, on on corruption, I mean, clearly fighting corruption and uh, establishing good forest governance is absolutely crucial if we want to uh, implement long-term solutions for responsible palm oil cultivation and and safeguard uh, forests. So I couldn't agree more. On uh, a palm oil, I mean, of course, what we're advocating uh, is a a, a cross-commodity approach uh, at EU levels. That means that the EU should tackle deforestation in its supply chains uh, across uh, commodities. Uh, And on the the deforestation action plan, I mean, uh, it's really long overdue. It's incredible. The Commission first recognized the EU impact on deforestation in 2008 – And then five years later, the commission, during the negotiations of the seven environment action program, recognized the need for an action plan. And four years later, where is this action plan? Um, uh, The the, the feasibility study has been underway for more than a year now. So we uh, we, we, we asked the commission to press ahead and come forward with an action plan, but not just an action plan full of empty words. We want an action plan accompanied with concrete uh, proposals for regulatory uh, action uh, and a clear vision on how the EU will deliver on its international commitments, climate commitments, and the sustainable development goals. I mean, the forest and sustainable agriculture are at the heart of the uh, UN uh, sustainable development agenda, and for a good reason. On the HSBC, I mean, it's true that they have policies in place, uh, but what uh, count now is that, uh, what, what count the most is that these policies are implemented. So, what we uh, need is, of course, the implementation and transparency over the enforcement of these policies. And uh, what we need is not just that one or two banks adopt policies, but we uh, need, uh, but the whole sector must move in the same direction. And, uh, and that's why we need government regulation. We need government regulation to uh, create a level playing, sh- level playing field uh, and, uh, and make the, the companies and the banks uh, accountable to their commitments. Okay.
1: <coughs> Thank you. Now let me open up for some more comments and questions. I see one hand here. We'll start here. We'll come to the front later. Hi.
4: My name is Stéphanie Guilin, and I work for Polynt. It's a consultancy working on trade with Asia. And uh, I had a trade-related question, as you asked. I think the EU could take unilateral measures,
1: but it would be very difficult. Could you slow down just a little to make it clearer so we can hear? Indeed, indeed.
4: So my trade question was more on trade negotiations. And I wanted to ask Greenpeace, for instance, maybe if you know already, because Indonesia is negotiating with the EU. And I was wondering whether there is a specific negotiation specific uh, there will be a sustainable development chapter so is there anything on deforestation could there be do you think there should be or do you think they should stay on uh, dealing with this issue on a bilateral flagged agreement different sort of agreement or you think they should rather include that in an fta in bilateral things so
1: not something that afterwards the partner could discuss at the wto for instance Okay, thank you. We'll come to the front and then I'll, I'll see another question at the back. Yes, here at the front.
8: Patrick Worms from the World Agroforestry Center. We're a science research organization. We're very active in Indonesia. Um, We have to distinguish when we talk about these issues about what we mean by forests. There are old growth forests, there are replanted forests, and there are plantations. And very often in legal documents, we don't distinguish what we mean, and it's obvious that the first one is far more valuable for protection from the second one. We also have to understand what we mean by supply chains. We tend to think that if we want to buy a lot of oil, we need to deal with a partner who has a lot of land and who is focused on growing a lot of palm. But research shows that by far the most efficient way of growing palm is in in the tropics, uh, is multi-strata systems where more than one commodity are grown at once. We have examples from Sumatra, for example, where farmers will typically get between two and three thousand dollars a year in income, managing farms of three to five hectares size from 10 to 15 different commodities, including palm, including rubber, and including a number of other things. This protects them against commodity price swings, it protects the land against biodiversity loss, and it is simply more efficient in terms of the biological productivity. The downside, of course, is it is more difficult for traders, it is more difficult for regulators to deal with 10,000 small obstreperous farmers than to deal with one owner of 10,000 hectares. How is the government in Indonesia making the distinction between these two different, very, very different kinds of farming, and what is it doing to encourage the growth of farming that is financially more productive, environmentally more resilient, and socially more agreeable, but is simply more difficult to manage from a regulatory perspective.
1: Okay, thank you. And we have one more question at the back before I come back to our panel.
9: Hi, thank you. Uh, Jacob Woodley from the Environmental Investigation Agency. I just wanted to draw a parallel with the timber sector here. In the timber sector, we have seen regulation. It is limited to legality, but it's taken an interesting line on certification, and I noted that the Environment Committee report basically advocated that there be a single certification scheme, which presumably other schemes could seek to be accredited or accepted into. Now, in our work, we have seen a lot of Illegal and unsustainable activities in oil palm concessions that are within certification schemes. The level of auditing, the level of conflicts of interests in the auditing industry, have often resulted in outcomes where you, you really can't trust the certifications involved. So, what we've seen in, in, the tim- in the regulation of the timber sector under the European Union Timber Regulation is that. Certification schemes are acknowledged as potential mechanisms of due diligence, but are not exempt from an an overarching prohibition on illegal timber under that regulation. And I'm interested in the panel's positions on whether they think one or more certification schemes being formally acknowledged will deliver the standard that the EU wants for its agricultural commodities, or whether those... Schemes should be deemed more as sort of free market indicators of potential compliance, but are not structurally exempt. We have seen cases in the timber sector where certific- certified wood and certified producers are some of the biggest illegal logging actors in the markets in those countries. A recent case in Austria showed that the, the biggest timber company in uh, Romania, which is both FSC and PEFC certified, is basically illegally logging and trading illegal timber. And all of that would have been freely allowed onto the market by a of its certification. So
1: okay.
9: I'm interested in that topic in particular because I know that certification schemes are seeking to capture any regulation and it should be the other way around.
1: Okay, thank you. Well, what a rich set of topics for the, the panel to pick up on. You know, Benedict, I think this issue uh, that, that's just come up now about, you know, the extent to which regulators are going to delegate responsibility to certification schemes or maintain oversight, and this is something actually perhaps that some of the other panel mo- members may want to come into. Uh, Daniel, I apologise I didn't pass on the question to you that the Politico journalist asked us to find out a little bit more you know, about RSPO plus and where that's going. Um, I think it comes back to something that, Sebastian, you talked about. Initiatives with the best of intentions, but our our audience have created questions about implementation gaps, lack of compliance, um, processes being put in place that don't deliver the outcomes that we need because there isn't enough control right through the sector. And Patrick has has, uh, raised this issue. You've got a lot of small farmers who could be helped to be both more efficient and gain more revenue. But, um, uh, Fuad, in the things that you talked about, these small farmers, they're going to get land and they're inefficient and they're going to be helped. Patrick is saying here that they don't have to be converted into large palm oil Plantations, they could still be supported. So, I might ask you to respond on that. So, panel, who would like to start off? Benedict, would you like to start?
5: Yeah, I I can. Um, I think that the issue you raised, uh, the credibility of the certification systems, is one of the core issues. And uh, to be honest, we had quite an intensive discussion. Uh, among the shadow rapporteurs when we were on uh, the Palmoy report, if it's time to propose to set up a single European certification system, which is um, monitored and controlled by the EU, um, to make it sure that we can trust in in the system. Um, I supported the... I would say I raised the idea to have some kind of European certification uh, system simply because I I believe that um, if uh, independent uh, certification systems uh, cannot be uh, properly controlled and monitored by the EU, uh, then we uh, we, we cannot be sure that what is on the EU market is really sustainable palm oil. And uh, also because I think that uh, the EU has to take the responsibility and we cannot push it to um, independent. Uh uh, organizations being NGOs or companies to, to take all the responsibility. On the other hand, there are good reasons to say that um, the EU shouldn't uh, try to do everything uh, alone and, and uh, you have to cooperate with local actors and local governments to set up a, um, a um, credible uh, certification scheme. Uh, finally, uh, we concluded that uh, perhaps it's not Okay, let's say that there was no majority to support uh, a single European uh, certification system, and and we agreed that uh, we don't point out a single system for certifications. We keep this question open how to organize the best uh, certification scheme for sustainable palm oil. And RSPO is mentioned um, uh, several times in in the report as as a good initiative. Um, um, To be honest, uh, uh, I am not uh, sure that that, that's the best solution. Uh, But um, I think that finally the real question is not who sets up or who is the owner of the certification scheme, but really that how uh, credible it is. And this is the question of monitoring and controlling and to uh, include and take into consideration all the important uh, aspects of sustainability. And it's not simply not having new clear cuts during the palm oil production, but human rights uh, issues, the rights of the local communities, um, and, and a, a lot of uh, other issues in line with the new SDG, new it's not so new now. So the SDG uh, sets of, uh, of the UN. Um, so at the moment, I think that we cannot tell you that, uh, how effective um, uh, this could be. It's, it's an open question. But of course, we have to keep our eyes on creating, setting up uh, the uh, certification scheme because this is a core issue. And we have very bad experiences in Europe With the biofuel regulation, one of the weakest points among several others, one of the weakest points of the European uh, biofuel regulation is the certification scheme. And just recently, the European Court of Auditors published a special report on the certification scheme of uh, the European biofuel uh, regulation. And the conclusion is that nobody can tell you what kind of biofuels we have on the European market because the certification uh, scheme is uh, not... um, Credible enough, and there are no guarantees that they can filter out the non sustainable biofuels from the market. And this is happening in Europe. So it it just points out the problems, what to do with the certification scheme in Malaysia or Indonesia or Brazil or or, uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, How can we uh, be sure that the certification scheme is reliable uh, enough? So it's a huge challenge and it's one of the key issues when it comes to sustainable palm oil and not only palm oil uh, uh, production. And I think that we have to concentrate very much on that. And if I can give just uh, um, one one reaction that I think that it's really it's a very important uh, difference that what kind of forest we are talking about and and clearly, primary and secondary forests and plantations are completely different uh, ecosystems, and we shouldn't mix them uh, up uh, in in a regulation. and uh, I believe that um, yeah. Let's face with reality, we cannot stop everything. Uh, so I think that we have to concentrate on halting uh, new clear cuts of primary uh, tropical rainforests. Uh, and that's, that should be the main goal of a sustainable uh, palm oil regulation or a European deforestation uh, policy, because that is the real loss uh, uh, for, uh, for us. And uh, 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 regarding the mixed plantations and, and uh, things like that, I think that the EU has a responsibility here to incentivize them and to help them with uh, research and development, with investment uh, uh, schemes to help those kind of, of practices. And the last remark, it was already mentioned, I don't remember who, who yeah, yeah the, the same, uh, from the same contribution that now we are talking about tropical rainforests, but deforestation is not a single tropical question. And within uh, the EU, in Romania, in in some Baltic states, uh, illegal logging uh, is an important issue. In Russia, it's a huge problem. And timber coming from Russia to the European markets Uh, generates and is a driver of of huge deforestation of the taiga in in, uh, Russia. Uh, So while uh, there is very much attention on on tropical deforestation, and I I agree that this is one of the most important issues because uh, losing uh, the tropical rainforest is something which we have to face with, but also uh, we have to take uh, into consideration deforestation in other areas within uh, the EU and outside uh, the EU which are not uh, tropical forests.
1: Thank you. Danielle, if I could ask you to respond to this issue of, you know, uh, the RSPO has done what it can, but it's not stopped
2: deforestation. How do you ramp up and push your efforts further? Okay, Joe. just um, a point, just if people aren't aware, within the current RSPO standard, it is already prohibited to clear-cut primary rainforests that was just mentioned by Benedict. That's already... You, you cannot produce certified sustainable palm oil if you've cut down primary rainforest, and you cannot produce certified sustainable palm oil if you've cut down forests that is of high conservation value. And you cannot produce certified sustainable palm oil if you've not followed our new planting procedure, which requires you to respect the free, prior, and informed consents of local communities, have a negotiated outcome, um, look at the riparian areas, etc. There's lots of provision within that to prevent deforestation. What we were sort of what, what we're talking about is also about ending any deforestation. So that's primary rainforest and secondary forest deforestation. Um, and a number of companies um, and NGOs have been working very hard to um as leaders in this area on zero deforestation. And Sebastian mentioned the 2020 um target. Um, In response to that call and that clear market signal from some of our members, um, NGOs and companies, the RSPO members came together and created an additional set of criteria. We call it RSPO Next, which fulfills um, this call for for zero deforestation, for no planting on peat, um, for enhanced fire protection measures. So that's that's part of the offer now um, to that growers can fulfill, and that the market can buy RSPO Next material. Now, the first growers have not yet been certified to this enhanced standard. Um, There is a grower who we're hoping to be able to announce soon that's certified, and then we're still looking for the first companies to buy um, RSPO Next certified palm oil. And if I may just also answer the question of the journalist from Politico, who I think highlighted the fact that in the MV resolution there was mention of the fact that the I think your question was about the RSPO assurance is not to the standard as could be expected, is that correct? That was your question. Okay, so and what are we doing about it? I mean it may sound um, a bit of a cliche, but it is absolutely true that the RSPO works on this basis of continuous improvement. Anybody that works in sustainability has to work on the basis of continuous improvement because we're always learning more. Um, and it's in a state of, you know, a state of progress. So, with that in mind, you know, the 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 assurance that the RSPo offers, the chain of custody assurance, in its certification procedures, is continuously being worked on. Um, some of you may not. Some people think the RSPo sets the policy and also certifies to the policy. We don't. It's a third-party auditing certification system. So we set the policy, the members set the policy, but there are independent certification bodies who certify the plantations. They are engaged by the, the growers, um, and they are accredited to be fit and proper certification bodies to certify. Um, now, we have recognized the fact that, you know, um, groups such as the Environmental um, Investigation Agency and others have highlighted where there has been weaknesses in certification, uh, certifi- certifications. Um, and there is an assurance task force. There is improved training to certification bodies on some of the um, areas, such as how to spot human rights, you know, how to work <coughs> with human rights, the free, prior, and informed consent procedures. And I'm <coughs> running out of time. So that's, um, that's work that's continuously ongoing. Excellent. Well, we have two minutes
1: left, and I would still like to invite our our final three panelists who haven't spoken in this round to respond on this. Brendan, would you like to just... There was quite a lot that came in there about certification. How you see that? Then I'll ask Sebastian the final word. Bill Bifanazia. Um, I think
4: just to follow up from what Danielle said, um, in the dread phrase of today, it is a journey that we're on. We started our forestry and agricultural policies in 2004. They've been revised two or three times since, with increasing strengthening and tightening of the rules and what we expect from our clients. I think on certification, it's worth pointing out what do we do when people say our clients are acting outside our own policy or outside that certification process, and we will always investigate that, any credible allegation that's brought to us. We will seek to work with those clients and bring them back on track But where they won't, um, where they're unable to or unwilling to, we will end our banking relationships with them. We did that in 2012 when we ended 104 relationships with palm oil companies and I think 60 forestry companies who wouldn't meet our new policy. And that's us taking action with people not meeting our policy requirements, but I must ask you to remember the other side of that. Once we've pulled out... The banking will be done somewhere else. There will be no one else engaging with that company to try and improve the standards. So, yes, we put time-limited requirements on people. (coughs) If they won't meet them, we
6: pull out. But then you lose a voice. Sebastian. Well... Greenpeace is not a member of RSPO, but we see that existing, uh, the existing standard of RSPO is not uh, strong enough uh, to protect forest, uh, peatland, uh, and uh, the, the rights of people that, that depend on, on them. Uh, the best existing standards for responsible palm oil cultivation exist, and they have been developed by the Palm Oil Innovation Group. So it's a uh, it's an initiative by a group of NGOs, including Greenpeace and uh, innovative companies, including palm oil, uh, large palm oil producers and uh, consumer good companies, and they have developed a comprehensive uh, set of uh, requirements to ensure a truly uh, responsible palm oil uh, cultivation. Um, so the, the response from RSPO has been the creation of RSPO Next, but RSPO Next only uh, incorporates part of the, of the, the, the POIC standards and so for for us i mean we are asking uh, certification schemes and, uh, and 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 companies to uh, follow and, and 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 adopt the the, POIC, the, POIC, uh, the POIC standards. the standards. standard and on the on the the, the the responsibility of the of the industry i mean of course i mean private certification schemes do not uh, exempt uh companies from their responsibilities uh, and they shouldn't not uh uh uh, uh, rely or, exa- or, or, or feel that they are exempted from their responsibility because they uh, rely on, on private certification schemes.
1: Danielle, did you just want to respond to something or were you okay
2: with? Um, yeah, just, I'd just quite like to know which criteria in POI does RSPO next not fulfill?
6: Well, according to our, our experts, and, uh, and so to my knowledge, on minimizing the use of pesticides, prohibiting uh, GMOs, uh, minimizing the use of uh, fertilizers, also a number of uh, transparency uh, uh, requirements, uh, reporting requirements, uh, uh, POIG goes, uh, goes, uh, standards go further.
1: Okay. <coughs> so now I'd like to use the, the last word to a country that hosts the green lungs for the rest of us. Um, We've heard in our conversation together issues around understanding local livelihoods, the importance of political will. We've heard about the implementation gap, making sure that there is a real monitoring of what's happening on the ground. We've heard about certification. We've heard about financing and consumer demand. Putting all of that together, it's clear that things are moving ahead from where they were a few years ago. I don't know if it's fast enough, but as someone who works on this on a day-to-day basis, what final message would you like to leave us with?
3: Yes. Uh, in wrapping up, uh, but first let me uh, very quickly uh, respond to our colleague from ICRAF. Um, yes, we have seen experiences with farmers in Kitland that uh, mix pineapple, uh, uh, the betel nut, and coconut, not palm oil, the coconut. And they make money, almost $200 per hectare per month, which is equivalent with palm oil farmers. So yes, uh, mixed crop is something we're looking at, at uh, peatland, and there are uh, thousands of thousands of farmers have been planting uh, peatland-friendly agriculture, not palm oil, yes. So we're going to promote that, and the Indonesian government also recently realized that uh, is uh, better or healthier for our sector <laughs> that if we don't rely too much on one commodity in the whole agriculture, but balance it a bit. So there will be policies coming up. Now on certifications, I have a message for our colleagues in Europe, including my fellow speaker, Benedict. You, 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 you must realize that Indonesia is no longer expanding new palm oil plantation because there's a... Uh, Instruction from the president in April 2016, we have 11.7 or 9 million hectares. That's it. We cannot have 12 million hectares of palm oil. So the only thing allowed is to replant, not to expand. There's an issue of what about palm oil, which have had licenses. Well, that's tough luck. <coughs> we may talk about compensation and so on. Number two, Malaysia, I think, also have finished the planting because you guys are so efficient using all the land. Yeah, so... Palm oil will no more be a driver of deforestation in Malaysia and Indonesia. In other countries, perhaps. And we both have 85%. <coughs> so questions to all of us here in Europe. Would it really matter to issue or uh, regulations? where 85% of palm oil is no longer a driver? There's a lot of other drivers, but not palm oil. And yes, Indonesia changed a lot in the last two years. Maybe that was the case in five years ago. On certification case, I like to also bring up something that EU are very proud of, the FLEC-T in Indonesia. When it was implemented, I remember very well in my days of NGOs, a bunch of NGOs published a report on how even doji companies get FLEC-T passed to Europe. It's a doji companies. They only have a few staff in the field. They're not really operating. How can they get it? So my point here is every certification, even the one that EU claim, we're going to control. If you look with a microscopic view, you find those loopholes, a lot of them. So on palm oil, if we really want to do something, or well, I would prefer, use the one which already existing. It's maybe not good enough, let's improve it, like RSPO or others. Recreating one, yes. It may take 10 years, it may take 8 years, it may take 12 years to make it effective. Isn't it a more strategic and efficient solutions? Let's improve the one that we have. Thank you.
1: Okay. I would like to draw this debate to a conclusion. I think you would agree we had a, a full and frank exchange with our uh, panelists. and I thank you very much on the behalf of the audience. Uh, Thank you for coming to this event, and I hope you have gone away better informed and that we will look forward to seeing an EU action plan on deforestation in the new future. Thank you again, and enjoy the rest of your day.